Coming up on this episode of East Screen, West Screen, Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall are back for a direct-to-video release through Amazon with Coming to America. All that plus news and more on this week's episode. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin. Where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Welcome to East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, waiting for a COVID vaccine in sunny South Florida. And coming to us all the way from a throne room inside the K-11 mall is Mr. Kevin Ma. That, that's not funny, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> that's messed up. <laughs> How, how's it going? That's all right. Well, you know, I... It's, it's not funny, but at the same time, I was looking at the news, and there's like a horde of people waiting to get back into the mall, right? Yeah, I mean, okay, so we should we should tell people what happened. Okay, so there's this new mall called K11 Museum in Hong Kong. This is where the old New World Mall is, and uh, any of you guys who who are familiar, with it's Hong like Kong, over new behind World... Chungking Mansions, right, in that area. No, it's it's right next. It's where the Intercontinental Hotel is, right, right next to the harbor. And it's actually had a had a, a what you call it a um, what do you call those apartment hotels? I guess is that what it's called? The apartment hotels? Is that what it is? Yeah, yeah. So back in the eighties or nineties, when like um, Bridget Lin came to you know she came to Hong Kong all the time to make films, and she would stay in the New World apartment hotels. Like it was a big thing. Like there was a huge mall there, and of course they tore that whole building down and they rebuilt it into a mall. And now, or they rebuilt the mall itself. It, was, it used to be a mall anyway. So now it's the K Eleven Museum. It's a really nice pretty little building that uh, stands over a really nice luxury hotel above it. But anyway, that's besides the point. The, what happened was that there was kind of a break, a cluster that happened inside the restaurant uh, of the mall. Um, and apparently uh, it, it, it about 40 plus cases happened in that cluster. Uh, it happened the weekend of February 18th to 19th. Uh, and that's when apparently someone or a staff of the restaurant passed it to about, and then, you know, because of bad ventilation, the restaurant ended up having about 40 something cases. The problem is I was at the mall two days after that cluster broke out. Uh, I was there watching a movie. So I was like about three floors or four floors above this restaurant. I was nowhere near the restaurant, but the, the cluster got big enough that the government had told everyone to um, to go that was at the mall um, after that date to go test it. Not, it wasn't mandatory. I mean, all the staff had to go get tested mandatory. But um, anyone who went to the mall afterwards, um, they were advising that, you know, those people get tested, including myself. So I had to go and get my first COVID test because of. I went to a mall to watch a crappy movie at the at the cinema there. Um, thank God nothing happened. Uh, I'm, I'm fine. I tested negative. Um, it's been two weeks and I don't have any symptoms, so I'm fine. Um, but anyways, the mall the mall closed down for a few days, and it it seemed like that no one's gonna dare to go back. But what happened was that because the mall when the day they reopened, they were gonna give up some coupons. Uh, apparently, it was like 
uh, $200 if you dine in and uh, if you pay if you spend more than 200 Hong Kong dollars you get $150 off yeah that's a huge discount right and uh, a lot of the stores were giving away like pretty big discount and apparently the mall the developer was paying for it so um, the same day the mall opened after there was a huge cluster of 40 something people um, hundreds of people stormed well, pretty much stormed the mall uh, to get discounts uh, and that was just yesterday so we don't know if anything happened after that but what happened was that because the, the coupon is supposed to be in the app of the the moss app but so many people went that the, the the app crashed and the server died and people couldn't get the damn coupons anyway yeah so it's a so, typical hong kong story <laughs> yep very typical hong kong story and i don't think well as a side note as a side note um that mall is actually kind of cursed because the few months within the few months of its opening, um, of course, you ran into the protest. So a lot of the sales had gone down. People didn't dare go go out. And a couple that place became the the spot for a couple of suicides, like in the past year. Um, and then this cluster broke out. So people start, of course, being Hong Kongers, people start talking about the feng shui. Uh, apparently, the the shape of the mall it's kind of like a snake. And in feng shui, a snake is very bad. So uh, so now people are talking about that place as bad feng shui and whatever and all that stuff. Right, right. And I, I was reading in the news that uh, the restaurant in question has kind of been the fall guy for all of this. Um, and they've said it's because the restaurant did not have adequate ventilation for a restaurant. And that's part of the reason why it became sort of this super spreader space. And then some other people were saying... Well, is it really the restaurant's fault since it's the mall that's responsible for sort of the ventilation and the architecture, right? It's not the tenant who's responsible. So um, there, there has been that kind of debate going back and forth a little bit on the news. Um, but I'm, I'm glad you're safe and that the ventilation was not, you know, all interconnected <laughs> from the restaurant to the <laughs> cinema. Um, and that's a fairly new cinema, right? It's a very new cinema, and that's a cinema that UA had to give up like only about a year and a half after opening it. Well, actually, it turned out that the 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 mall developer had built the cinema, and they gave it to they sort of quote unquote sold it or rented it to UA to run it. And about a year and a half after they opened, UA then sold it off to a different theater, uh, or they passed it on to a different theater because they just couldn't keep well because of the COVID closings. And they just couldn't keep running it. It's a very expensive space to to keep running a cinema. So so even UA got cursed in the process. And by the way, th that debate, apparently the uh, a medical expert went and they said, well, actually, the, the ventilation in within the shop was up to the shop, as in it's up to their design. So so they said the, the expert said that the mall's ventilation is actually quite good. It's actually normal. Hmm. It's fine. But within that shop space, it was the shop's oh, design okay. that that resulted in the bad ventilation. Gotcha, gotcha. Which is why they booted the restaurant. Right, right. Okay, so that that makes a little bit more sense. Um, and so, I mean, who's who's uh, managing the theater now? Who has has another chain picked it up, or is it private? Uh, yeah, MCL. MCL. So, okay. uh, MCL is the Intercontinental, um, and and both. Uh, what's the other company that runs it? Oh, Media Asia. Um, they they co sort of own that chain and 
they're making a huge expansion actually i said a couple episodes ago so now they've taken over this k11 uh cinema which is actually quite nice and uh hong kong international film festival which we'll talk about next episode because their lineup is being announced in a few days here in hong kong as of this recording um they 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 have a three year contract with the K eleven cinema, and apparently part of the uh, deal when they when UA passed on the um, their their operating rights to MCO is that that HKIFF contract is also passed on for for I think for this year. So this is apparently the second year or the third year of that contract. So uh, HKIFF will will continue to have screenings in this theater. Um, yeah, so if you do come back to uh, Hong, if anyone would come back to Hong Kong for the film festival, it's very likely that you will have a chance of seeing a film at K11. Although now that I've talked about its feng shui, you may not want to go. Right, right. How does it stack up in terms of convenience compared to other theaters in the area, like the one and um, what else is over there? Is the ocean still there? No, or is that gone? Grand Ocean is still there, uh, and I Square has been passed on to Emperor now. Uh, that's an I-square right above the MTR station. So that is the most uh, convenient in terms of if you're traveling by by rail. Um, it, it's not the most convenient. I, I've heard friends complaining that from the MTR station, it takes about 10 minutes of walking. Uh, unless you're taking the, uh, the, the uh, whatchamacallit, the East Rail. Um, it's right above Jim Sartre East Station, pretty much right above it. So it's actually quite convenient if you're taking that train. I take the bus to Jim Sartre, and my bus stop is right across the street from the mall. So for me, it's not too bad. Um, from the Star Ferry, it's about a seven, eight-minute walk along the uh, the harbor. So it's a nice little walk. It's, it's not closed, but it's not too far either. So so it's okay spot for me. But I've heard people who usually travel to Jim Sartre by MTR complain that the walk is a little much. All right, so for our news this week, uh, not a whole lot going on, but we've got some releases pending. So uh, first up, Kevin, you sent me a little blurb over on Messenger the other day. Uh, Asian Pop-Up Cinema is getting ready to have their 12th season. If you're not familiar with them, they are kind of running, uh, they've been running uh, on sort of online mini film festivals uh, of note, um, especially since COVID is has been so predominant with theaters closed. So uh, anything of note to watch out for in Asian Pop-Up Cinema Season 12? Yeah, uh, so Asian Pop-Up Cinema is an organization that was started by my friend Sophia Wong, uh, and and she has been running these local screenings of Asian films in Chicago for quite a long time. But because of COVID, um, the AMC theater where they're usually based, uh, I think is still closed. And so they are running two different components. They're running a um, series of online screenings and they're also doing uh, in-person screenings at a local drive-in theater. So um, I'm, I, I only got to talk about the Hong Kong films because I actually work for them um, as the moderator for these uh, Q&As for the Hong Kong films. So what I do is I hook up with the, the directors and the stars on Zoom, um, or in the case of one film, I actually got to see them in person yesterday. But yeah, I record these and then I, I translate these and I send them over to, uh, to, uh, to the festival. So all five Hong Kong films this season will come with Q&As and intros by the filmmakers. Uh, so there are two films that will be showing online, um, you, and they will be available for viewers across the United States. Um, 
some other films are only accessible in Illinois State, but the Hong Kong films are accessible by in, in all of the United States. So uh, one film is Keep Rolling, the documentary uh, about En Hui. It's directed by a man named Chung, the art director. And it's, I think it's a really great documentary about uh, En Hui's uh, life and works. And there's a lot of great behind the scenes footage. And there's also a very interesting Q&A that I recorded with a man named Chung about the film. Uh, so that will be first up, I think, on March 17th. Uh, don't hold me to these dates. Uh, you should just check the website. But the week after that is a film called Elisa's Day, which is quite special because this film just premiered in Osaka uh, yesterday or two days ago. Uh, and this is the North American premiere. So if you watch this film, if you're in America and you watch this online, you will be actually ahead of Hong Kong audiences because the film has not been uh, shown in Hong Kong. It doesn't have a release date in Hong Kong yet. So we don't know when we get to see, get to see the film. Although I've seen the film. Uh, the film is a first film initiative film. So this is the program that uh, produced films such as um, Weeds on Fire, Mad World, um, My Prince Edward. So the film is a directorial debut of director Alan Fong. And um, the film stars Ronald Chang uh, as a police detective um, who is investigating a case, um, a quite a notorious case actually surrounding um some uh, a, a girl who was a unwed mother who gave birth in her teens. And that, that girl is played by Hannah Chang, who was in uh, Paradox and G Affairs. And I think it's um, the Q&A is actually quite special. We had Rano and Hannah and director talking about the, the real case that surrounded the film. And they really gave a lot of interesting insight about how they approached the character and how Alan uh, Fung, the director, wrote the script. And I think it's a very powerful uh, intimate drama and like I said the first initiative is pretty much a, a brand name now and and I think it's a film that's uh, a Hong Kong film that's worth watching and of course Rano is, is excellent in, in a very dramatic role here uh, so those are two films that will be shown online that will be uh, at least day will probably be online the 24th of March or the 21st of March again please check the website at uh, Asian Pop-Up Cinema um, Facebook page or the website, you can find out when they're playing. But each film will play for a week online and will come with intros and Q&As by the filmmakers. Now, if you're in Chicago, there will be free films at the local drive-in theater. Uh, the centerpiece film is One Second Champion, which is the latest film from one of the directors of Vampire Cleanup Department. Uh, it comes with a really great gimmick. It's about a guy who can... Uh, was the magical power of seeing one second ahead so he uses it in boxing um it's quite a fun little local film it's not a big production or anything but it is very fun um and the cast is pretty good it stars empty chow who is a musician who you may not know or you may not have seen many films but uh the cast really worked hard to do the boxing stuff for the film uh and then our closing film is ready or not which is a um comedy from Emperor Motion Pictures, and one cool is their first time collaborating on producing a local film. Um, that film stars Michelle Y and Carlos Chan as a couple. It's very it has a very strong sort of Patrick Kong vibe. So it's about this girl who really wants to get married, and the boyfriend doesn't want to. So it has this sort of battle of the sexist element to it. It's the directorial debut of a longtime scriptwriter named Ansem Chan. I won't talk about the films that he's written because, well. It might turn you off, but it's, it's very fun. It's a fun little local comedy. Um, 
And I just talked to the, the stars and the director yesterday, and they're very fun to talk to. So that film will also come with a Q&A. And the third film, which will play right in the middle, smack dab between those two films, is a local film called I Still Remember, uh, which is a very small budget um, sort of indie film. Uh, it stars um, Patrick Tam and Tony Wu, who was in Weeds on Fire. And it's a sort of a inspirational um, melodrama thing <laughs> about marathon running. Um, and that one is, is, is not too bad as well. So look up where these films are playing or how you're going to be able to watch these films and when these films are playing. It's going to happen over March and April. Um, so there's still time to go get tickets and all that stuff. So look up Asian Pop-Up Cinema um, on Google or on your socials and you should be able to find more information. Yeah, and we will have links in the show. Um, one question, I, I guess the answer might be kind of obvious though, is, is why aren't the other three films part of the sort of um, online fest and limited only to the drive-in screening? Is that because of cost or rights issues with other distributors or how, what's up with that? I think Sophia still encourages um, in-person screenings. I think films should, you know, I think we all share the belief that films should be seen on a big screen and a drive-in theater is, is very safe. Because you are in your own bubble, you are in a car. Yeah, but I mean, you have one theater in Chicago versus a potential audience of paying people across the United States, right? I mean, it's like, as far as I know, these yeah. these films aren't going to any other festivals in the United States, right? Uh, well, there's still a chance. I mean, those three films, they're showing in the noise. So other festivals may want them as uh, the premiere in their respective states. Right, you know, right. so so that could that is one thing. And I, I mean, I don't know the exact reason, but yes, it could be right. Uh, I think a lot of distributors are still very wary of online screenings because VPNs can be detected. And they do know that people are watching these films on, on VPNs, um, in my experience. At least one fest, I saw at least one distributor noting complaining to a festival that that hey uh this room is being watched by people with vpns that can't happen so so that is something they're very wary of and um yeah um so you know it, it happens i think i think that distributors have the right to protect their films to make sure that they're not they're only seen by where they're supposed to be seen and you know asian how, 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 how does that make how does that make any festival? sense if a person's paying for you know x amount of dollars to watch a film at Festival Y that's streaming it, then they may or may not, you know, obviously if there's going to be a festival in their area, a physical festival, then they may not pay that same amount to see it, but they've already paid, right? But by limiting it, you're saying, okay, well, for this person in, in, in Area A, they can physically go there. For person in Area B who may not have a festival, they could pay too. We could get that revenue, but by saying, nope, we're not going to do it and we're not even going to allow VPNs, um, you're saying that we're just cutting off that potential money altogether because they may not never get a festival, right? So it just seems it seems so backward to me. No, because a film the more the more audiences one film is is exposed to in terms of regions, the more regions one film is exposed to, its value goes down. Okay, because film, they, a lot of these film agents, sales agents, they make money by screening fees, not the box office. So for them, if I sell it to, for example, I rent it out to this festival in Chicago, if that if that film is being seen by um, another you know audiences from say Canada, 
then you know the festival will say, well, your film has shown look, look, people from Canada have been able to see your film, so why should I pay your screening fee to show your film? Because they already lost the value. Gotcha. So the value of a film really depends on where it's played. You know, like that's why festivals are really keen on getting quote uh, you know so and so premieres of that region because that film still has value because it hasn't seen by people in our region. So it still holds value. It gives me reason to pay that screening fee. And that's how companies make their money. The festivals keep the box office, right? So um, to me, I know I know it, it's a frustrating model in, in, the, in the days of the pandemic, but there are, you know, the model works because the model works. So that's the only way I can say it. But I don't know why Sophia um, had three films, so three certain films on the big screen, whereas two other films online, again, it could be a rights issue. It could be just because Asian Pop-Up Cinema is a Chicago-based organization. They prefer to be getting films for Chicago audience. Mm. But yeah, um, at the, I, I mean, because Keep Rolling has already shown in, in Hawaii. That's where they got their North American premiere. So that's probably why they were able to show it online. Because if it hadn't, it was a North American premiere, they might not have gotten that online screening permission. Right. So yeah, that's the model. That's how it works. All right. Moving on from that little rant of mine, I apologize. <laughs> uh, we have some uh, other Hong Kong film news. This time on Hong Kong screens with the new film "All You Need Is Love," a film that's just in time for the pandemic, right? Well, the film was made for the pandemic right. because uh, this is so Twin Dragons uh, was the last time sort of the Hong Kong film industry really got together and and banded together to make a sort of a quote unquote charity film. Well, that film was actually a charity film. But here. Um, so last year, when the pandemic started, a lot of the a lot of film workers were out of work in Hong Kong. So the 10 Hong Kong film companies that includes Echo, One Cool, Emperor, um, media asia the big ones all the big ones they got together and they say well let's make a film keep the film worker keep film workers um paid and let's all get together and make a film to raise money for the film industry right it was actually shot very quickly it was shot in two weeks and it was supposed to come out last summer but there are a lot of hiccups along the way for example they they have planned that i think about 20 percent of their funding would come from the government because the government does have the film um, the film fund where they they give a production grant or I can't I don't I'm not sure it was a loan or a grant I think it's a grant where they would support local films by giving them a grant and they were hoping to get 20 percent of it from the government but the government only gave them 10 which is again very on brand uh, for the Hong Kong government. Uh, so there was a lot of hiccups along the way, but now the film is finally coming in April and we have the first trailer which you will see on the show page. Um, the film is directed by Vincent Cook, and but of course, uh, apparently some other, a few other directors worked on it because it was shot in only about two weeks, so they had to do multiple units at the same time. It was mainly shot at the Ocean Park Hotel, and of course, it's a film about the pandemic. It's about a hotel that gets shut down um, for quarantine, and it's about all these wacky characters who are occupying the hotel, blah, 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 blah. Uh, the film has, a, of course, a huge cast of you know hong kong actors that you will probably know it has of course michael huay there was a spot of jackie chan in the trailer there's lewis Koo, and then uh there's julian chen um who has been in a lot of local comedies in the last couple of years as well as lewis chen who has also been in a lot of local comedies i probably can't even name all the actors in the film but those are big names that i saw in the trailer um so yeah that's coming in april finally looking forward to that although probably will 
take another year before it hits video. Some of the reactions that I saw online, people were a little surprised to see Jackie in there, uh, <laughs> given that, uh, you know, he's a, he's a very controversial figure in Hong Kong. So, uh, but of course we do have Lewis there and uh, both Lewises, I should say. So uh, that should uh, be enough for the local audience as well. Um, yeah, that covers like 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 eighty percent of the Lewises in Hong Kong film industry. <laughs> I guess we we have a we have an eighty percent Lewis penetration in, in this. It it in this it'll film. be interesting too to see how it's received um, with local audiences because uh, again, going, turning to the news. Um, there's been a couple articles of complaining about a particular facility where people have been taken to for quarantine. I guess it's over by Disney, and uh, people have like been blogging about it and posting pictures and and really kind of talking about how terrible the food is. So um, you know when they, I, I know some people saw this trailer and they're like, "Oh, that's such a pipe dream that you know you're going to be stuck in this big fancy hotel." Um, but it's I it. I get the sense that they're just trying to make some fun and kind of go for that sort of Lunar New Year feel with a big cast who, you know, you know, probably you'll see Jackie for like a single scene or something. I, I'd be surprised if he's in it more than that. And, and similar with Lewis, I don't think he'll probably be in it all that much. I think it'd be very interesting to see sort of the making of um, and what they had to do to get this done during the time of COVID. Um, Cause I think that might be a interesting piece of film history. So maybe that'll be something that'll be included on a future media release as well. Um, have you gotten any, any kind of sense of uh, reactions from your contemporaries over there? Are people looking forward to this or do they think just, uh, it's just another one of these, these uh, sort of big uh, charity films. I mean, you mentioned twin dragons, um, the one I like a lot that I return to on occasion is uh, The Banquet from 1991, which was sort of a, another big one. Um, I think that was for the flooding, or was that for Earthquake? I can't remember. I think that was for a flood. Yeah. But yeah, that's the one. Actually, I, I kept trying to think of what it was. I thought it was Chinese Feast, but since our Chinese Feast was not the charity film, but then I remember Twin Dragons was, and then I was like, wait, there was a Banquet film that yeah. was also that same. But yeah, that was, out, yeah, that was, was the, the year before, because I think Twin Dragons was 92, and... I think the bank was 91. Yeah, yeah. Um, the reaction here has very much 100% been the latter. <laughs> like, people are not digging this. They're like, well, it looks stupid. What are these people? You know, it, it's one of those really quickly slapped together Hong Kong comedies that that looks like something that came out of the 90s. I mean, to be honest, it, it, the, the jokes didn't land at all. And they're like, Jackie Chan, what the hell? So, so it may have the opposite effect of, you know, they're trying to get the box office money to raise money for, I mean, it, it costs 40 million Hong Kong dollars, which is quite a lot for a local production. And, and from what I heard, that most people got paid, or I think everyone got paid on time, which already did the job already. But what the companies wanted to do was to use the box office money to help raise money for the industry, although I'm not sure how. Um, but I don't think that they'll make back the money here in Hong Kong. Hmm. Uh, final bit of news, uh, Wong Kar Wai, right? Yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about the world of Wong Kar Wai Blu-ray set that's coming out, um, courtesy of Criterion Collection. It's be coming out on March 23rd, and of course, Wong Kar Wai fans are looking forward to this because these are all 4K remasters of, I think, five or six or seven. I'm just going to count these off and see how many they add up to. Okay, so we will have new 4K restorations of... 
Chucking Express, Happy Together, as ti- as tears go by, and what else am I counting off here? Um, Fallen Angels, In the Mood for Love, Twenty Forty Six, and The Short from the Hand. So so technically six feature films and one short film, right? Um, although it is the feature length version of The Hand, but. So for most Wong Kar Wai films, this should be a big thing. It should be like a great thing. But what happened was that Wong Kar Wai pulled a George Lucas. And in the course of the restoration, he went back and did a lot of revisions on at least uh, four or five of the films. So we're talking about a new sort of green tone all over um, In the Mood for Love. He changed the aspect ratio of Fallen Angels. He apparently used alternate takes um, on a few of the films. Um and uh, what? Oh, uh, Days of Being Wild is also coming. Um, he, I'm not sure what he changed on Days of Being Wild, but those the, the changes on those three on on at least um, in the Mood for Love and and Fallen Angels have ca- have kind of caused a, a minor uproar. You know about well, who are you to go and well he's the director, but who are you to go? You know who who is one card to go and you know change the films that he made? You know what the what the hell? You know it's um, so I don't know what you think about it, Paul. I mean. It is very Wong Kar Wai to go back and keep tinkering with films. And for me, like, for me, it's okay because I already own a lot of these films, the older versions on Blu-ray. So these are good sort of comparison pieces, I suppose. But uh, people who don't have the older Blu-rays who have been waiting for this remaster to come out, they're never going to get to see it the way they first saw it in the cinemas or even on older versions of videos. And from now on, these would these will be the definitive versions of those these films, even though they may be completely different from how people remember them in the first place. So I personally kind of half-half. Like, yes, it is Wong Kar Wai's right to go and tinker his films as much as he wants. He owns the rights to them. He was in charge of the remasters. Although apparently Christopher Doyle was not um, was not included in, in these transfers, but it was all Wong Kar Wai's decisions to change the color, the color timing and stuff. But on the other hand, yes, I mean, the films, the memories are what they are, and it's it is kind of a disservice to the fans to to re completely redo those memories. So I'm kind of on the fence here. Um, what do you think, Paul? What do you think about Wong Kar, uh, these kind of revisionism from from filmmakers? You know, I, I come at this from not being the biggest Wong Kar Wai fan. In fact, the films that I love from Wong Kar Wai are not in this set. But he has, you know, I mean, how, how many times has he redone uh, like Ashes of Time? A, a couple at least, right? And and uh, he tinkered with the the Grandmaster right before um, its its physical media releases. So this is this is not really new, I guess. I think one of the pending questions I have is is does Wong Kar Wai's work, and by that I mean the collaborative work of especially the cinematography, need 4K? Right, because especially his earlier work, it was it was always a bit more gritty and and rough and raw looking. You know, I mean, obviously something like the the Grandmaster has a lot more polish to it um, from a cinematic perspective. I just, I you know, I mean, I'm sure this will be well received by many fans out there. The idea that you can throw this in and you can put it on your UHD uh, TV. Um, but yeah, I just, I mean, 
Well, the discs aren't in 4K. They're Blu-ray discs. They're, there's no 4K release of these these 4K remasters okay, uh, so planned. Just I mean, simply they'll be Blu-rays. theatrically screened. Yeah, but there will be theatrical screenings of these 4Ks. Uh, so, for example, the Hong Kong Film Festival is showing the 4K versions of Happy Together okay. and The Mood for Love in 4K. But, um, I mean, to counter your point, apparently 35-millimeter film, which is what these films are shot on, most of these films, or I think all of these films are shot on, uh, 35-millimeter film has the resolution of 8K, apparently. The native resolution about 8K or 10K. So, in fact, a 4K remaster would be sort of, would be uh, actually condensing or compressing so, the original. Yeah, so then it even goes more to the, yeah. like, why? Why, you know, what's yeah. what's the need for it unless it's just an excuse to tinker with it more if that's what he wants to do and get it back in circulation again, you know, get people talking about it, which, I mean, it does serve... It does serve that for that purpose, right? Yeah, well, the 4K, because, you know, film celluloid doesn't last. You know, you have to keep them in very careful storage, cold storage, and they do degrade over time. So the idea of um, making them digital, putting them into hard drives would make them last longer. That's apparently the idea, which is why they, they've done these digital remasters. Um, but yeah, apparently he used it as an excuse to tinker with the color timings and change the aspect ratios and all that stuff, which is what is grading the fans, really. They're annoying them quite a bit because they're like, well, I, I know you want to connect in the mood for love to days of being wow with the green color, but that's not how you intended to make the film in the first place. Why didn't you, you know, that's not how Christopher Doyle colored the film yeah. or color timed the film in the first place. So, you know, is it really his right to do it? Yeah, legally, yes, but but for, you know, for fans who have loved these films and have collected these films over the years, if this is going to be a definitive version, well, then that takes away from what we have seen for what we have praised and what we loved about it for the last 20 years. I think legally, yeah. I mean, if anybody has a right to do it, he does. I mean, this is a debate that's gone on back to the, you know, ten Ted Turner days of colorization of like black and white films and then tinkering with things like Metropolis by re reworking the soundtrack and, and, and stuff like that. And I guess that's all fine. I, I think for fans like myself, the, the, it would, it would serve as a kind of a, you know, a peace offering if the directors would say, okay, we're going to do this and make these changes. But when we release it, we're also going to release the original version, right? Which some people have done. I mean, it took forever, but Lucas, I think, in one of the <clears throat> one of the HD sets, finally released the <clears throat> excuse me, finally released the uh, original Star Wars, right? Not the not the modified ones. Really? So, yeah. I, really? I, I, I so wish set. <laughs> I, I I do believe that's that exists on a set, but prior to that, it was only available on Laserdisc. I think, if if memory serves, but I. I Think, believe I read that there's a there's a set in existence of um, Blu-rays that include the pre-tinkering versions, um, and I mean if if that was kind of the practice, I, I would I would be happy. You know, if I, if you could get the early version of the Grandmaster and the you know Grandmaster 5.0, <laughs> you know, if you would if you would label these like software. <laughs> And then you could see exactly what you're getting. It would be so much easier, you know. Otherwise, it's like, oh, I've still got my old Ashes of Time VCD. I can go throw that in, 
know, so yeah, from what he's done with Ashes of Time, he's made the Redux the definitive version, and he didn't even clean up Ashes of Time. He just because it still looks dirty, it still looks unremastered, and he just changed, made it all yellow, and took out the original music, and he hasn't still, he still hasn't been able. Well, apparently, what what happened was that he couldn't make the old version available because the print is gone right. or something like that. So that print can the old print cannot exist anymore, which is why he had to do the. Redux. I can but, I can lend him my VCD. <laughs> 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 but but i think it's assumed that the old versions the old blu-rays of the films uh fallen angels was released by kino lober uh criterion they released um in the mood for love and chunking express of course um and happy together was also i think on kino but apparently it's assumed that those really those older releases would be out of print right understood i mean it, it's you know it's it's a com more, much more complex issue than we're probably you know uh, getting into it as just fans here, and so uh, there's there's a lot of nuance to it. Um, but you know, fans are gonna rage like we do, and uh, that's why we're fans. Well, I, I got a question for you, Paul. Before we move on, okay, I've got a question. Are you on the camp of Han shoots first? Oh yeah. Oh come on, Han Thank shot God. first. I mean, there's no question. There, that's Han. That's who Han is. You want a Disney fi yes. Han? No, no, thank you. Okay, come on. Um, okay. so yeah, <laughs> we're cool. We're cool. We're cool. <laughs> All right. I think that's going to wrap it up for our news this week. When we come back, we're talking about Eddie Murphy once again in coming to America. And welcome back. So our film this week coming to America with two instead of two, uh, taking us back back to revisit the property from 1988 and Eddie Murphy's back along with Arsenio Hall and most of the original cast this time uh, coming from director Craig Brewer who um, you know you might know from a couple films Tarzan and some earlier films but uh, worked with Murphy most recently on the film Dolomite is my name which was sort of a comeback film for Eddie Murphy as he finds his footing again once again and I think people were um, very happy to see him in that and it was very well received I really liked it a lot so here we are back with um, the sequel to one of his bigger hits of the era coming to America uh, the story uh, very brave basically Prince Akeem becomes king of Zamunda but he faces a growing threat from General Izzy of Nexodoria when he learns that he has an illegitimate son named Lavelle back in Queens Akeem flies there to convince him to return to be the heir to the throne and help him placate Izzy through a royal marriage but this places Lavelle at odds with his new half-sisters of which he has three especially the oldest Princess Mika who thinks that she should be the heir to the throne and there's uh, lots of gags and hijinks that ensue in there um so this is i mean a film that if you're from my generation gen x um we were probably uh the target audience for this film uh in the era kevin you are gen y right is that correct is it i are was you... born in 84 yeah so, so you're gen y because gen z is 90s so uh, I'm apparently millennial though. I am a millennial. Apparently millennial is anyone after 1980. So right, yeah, I'm a right. millennial. Okay. But, yeah, but Gramps. I... <laughs> All right, you Grandpa. you youngin, you you whippersnapper. Um so <laughs> get off my lawn. 
<laughs> so yeah, and so but I mean, this is really um, tapping back into that nostalgia for um, a lot of us who were, you know, uh, old enough to go see a rated R film. Not like these young kids like Kevin uh, back in the eighties. <laughs> um, and so yeah, the, I mean, this is all about nostalgia, and I think on that level, the nostalgia works here. It is super fun. But at the same time, the story and the jokes don't always work. And in fact, I think there's a lot more misses than hits. It really helps if you sit down and you watch the first film. I had very strong memories of the first film. It really left a big impression on me. I watched it multiple times, you know, in the 90s. Home video was a big thing. Um, so I remembered a lot of it, but I didn't remember a lot of it as well. I mean, there was a lot that I had just you know, law had had left me over the years and I hadn't revisited it in a long, long time. So I said, okay, I'm going to sit down and watch the first film. And then the next day I watched, um, the, 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 the sequel. And I think that helps because they do a lot of revisits, not just with characters, but with, uh, specific scenes and, and some specific gags as well. Um, so if you haven't seen the first one in a long, long time, even if you think, yeah, I know what it's about. I know what happened. Um, you'll really be doing a disservice to this film unless you go and watch it first. Um, and I think you'll appreciate this film a lot more. I think if you go into this kind of cold, um, it's, it's not going to be as good of a film for you. So, uh, take that little bit of advice for what it's worth. Um, they do pay a lot of lip service to female empowerment in this film, and it's trying to, I guess, be in line with more updated and modern sensibilities. But oddly, I think that kind of falls flat um, because it's really the male characters who end up doing a lot of the work and what we would call mansplaining. And a lot of the female characters who are really vying for this empowerment end up being pushed to the side as a result. And I mean, this is a vehicle for Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall. So you understand that they're supposed to be really front and center. And for the most part, they are. But I was really expecting this to be um, a little bit more in the now than sort of in the 80s and in the 90s like it was. Now, uh, that being said, the first film was rated R, and it was fairly racy for the era. In fact, I'd forgotten how racy it was. Um, there's lots of skin, there's uh, lots of some adult situations, and there's lots of F-bombs. I mean, back in the 80s, they just loved dropping the F-word all the time. Um, <clears throat> and I guess that was just the tone for the era. Um, this film has kind of moved more into family-friendly territory. It's not family-friendly, so, I mean, don't sit down with your little ones to watch this. But it's pushed itself closer. I mean, I, you know... Uh, I lost count of the number of F-bombs in the original film. I don't think I heard any in this film, uh, per se. Um, so they've kind of toned down on that side. Um, there's no nudity, but there's some, still some implied adult situations. So, you know, it's, it, it's, it's an interesting divergence from what was considered kind of the comedy style of the late 80s and the comedy style now. And again, I think part of that is because it's this shift to being less about single people and and dating and finding a partner and more about, oh, now we've got kids and how do we raise the kids and, you know, um, how do we structure our family? So I think that that was 
something that's been prevalent in the past couple years because as people like myself, you know, have gotten into positions of power within Hollywood, you know, they're 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 tapping into that nostalgia for content. And but at the same time it's like, yo, you know, Keanu's old. <laughs> And, and and Eddie's old, so what are we going to do? we got to talk about their families now. And so you get, you know, the new Bill and Ted movie, which, you know, is about their family, right? You know, Bill and Ted face the music from last year. <clears throat> Excuse me. And you get this family, uh, the, this film, which is, um, you know, so much more about family. The original film was about family too, but here it's it's it's, you know, really about the next generation of family more so than I think the last film was, which was really just about Akeem needing to get married. Um, so some of the gags here are really cringe-inducing at times. Uh, they may feel out of place, but the like I said, the nostalgia is strong. I think it's strong enough to save the fairly weak plot because at the end, end of it, I, I still had fun, not as much fun as the original film, but it was fun to see Murphy and Hall return to these familiar roles, um, and they have multiple roles throughout. So... Um, like I said, nearly everybody is back from the original film with a couple of notable exceptions. And um, I won't mention who they are because, um, you know, I guess that would kind of constitute spoilers. But people have been very vocal in talking about some of those exceptions uh, online. And, you know, like, where are they? Why didn't they show up? Because they were fairly important characters for, you know, uh, the the film back then. Um and I think, you know, one, one character in particular who I deeply love, um, he's here, John Amos, who I always think is dead. And I have to blame uh, Good Times because back in the 70s when he was on Good Times, that was one of my favorite shows as a kid. And uh, they killed him off like in season three. And f I always associate John Amos with his character of James Evans Sr. And, you know, I'm always like, wait, he's not dead <laughs> whenever I see him in a movie, you know, it's like he, he pops up and I'm like, I, I thought for sure he was dead. And it's just because of that sort of TV association I had with him. Cause I was, you know, uh, I was a latchkey kid and part of the TV generation. Um, so it was great to see him. Great to see a lot of the cameos um, that weren't part of the original film that they kind of brought in to, to fill out the roster here too, as well. I think the budget was well utilized. There's some great costuming. There's some great chore choreography, things that you would associate with the first film as well. Um, but this is really very little about coming to America. Like the first film had this dynamic of um, kind of talking about African, African migration to America and then the black American experience and how those two things are are very, very different, um, and how there are misconceptions on both sides of that, which I think was very interesting for the time. They don't really get into any of that here. They do go to America, but they don't spend a lot of time there. Most of the plot is taking place in Zamunda, and even that is kind of falling back on these kind of strange tropes that feel a bit out of dated. Um, you know, uh, it... it you know, it, it's it's just it it, it kind of has some weird moments. Like I said, the gags don't always hit, and some of them can be cringe-inducing, and and head-scratching at the same time. I mean, I loved seeing Murphy and Hall on screen together, and the old cast. I was not really that invested in 
the story about his new son, the way they kind of work that in there is kind of like, uh, okay, you're really going to say that, you know, this is the reason. Okay, that's fine. I do like some of the other players they brought on, you know, uh, Leslie Jones. I'm a big fan of hers, and and I think she's funny. Um, But, you know, overall, I think that uh, for people outside of my generation who have a really sort of strong connection to the first film, I really wonder how they'll see this. And thinking about that this was an Amazon Prime platform release versus how might it have been if it had gone to the cinema, how might it have been, you know, received uh, by an audience, you know, a cinema paying audience? Would this film be kind of taken in in a different light? I mean, so far, I think reviews have been mixed to fairly positive um, overall. Um, but I'm wondering how much of the platform that it's on is is playing into that as well. It does beg two questions in my mind. Um, the first is, does this mean that, you know, if this is successful, we're going to see Murphy return to reprise other roles, uh, Beverly Hills Cop, Trading Places, and in some of his bigger roles, you know, Golden Child sequel, anyone? Uh, that would be one I'd look forward to. Um, yeah, and I guess even the bigger question for me, you know, some weeks ago, Kevin and uh, was on podcast on Fire with Kenneth, and one of the films they were talking about is one of my all-time favorites, the Fun and the the Luck and the Tycoon with Chow Yun-Fat, which is a total ripoff of Coming to America. <laughs> I mean, just a, a flat... I mean, why there, how there was no legal lit- litigation against this film, I have no idea, but I have so much fun with it. Chow Yun-Fat, Sylvia Chang, basically doing this exact plot. Um, and, you know, I'm like, okay, if this film does good, does that mean we're going to get Chow Yun-Fat in a sequel? You know, The Fun, The Luck, and The Tycoon or something? Uh, I would love to see that dearly just because I have such a soft spot for that movie. And it's a cheesy movie, to be sure. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of my thoughts in a nutshell. Mixed bag. Um, but I think for, you know, fans of the original, there's some stuff to be taken that uh, you'll really enjoy. So, Kevin, talk a little bit about, you know, uh, how did you... I mean, you must have first encountered this on video. What was your thoughts? Because it w- might have been far removed from the time period when when it was originally released. And then, you know... How do you see the sequel? Well, my Eddie Murphy movie when I was young was actually Trading Places for some reason. I, me and my brother watched uh, Trading Places all the time. Jamie Lee Curtis. Jamie Lee Curtis. That's all I'm going to say. That's why you watched it all the time. Jamie Lee Curtis. Well, I was like 10 years old, so I didn't have that idea in my head yet. But um, yeah, that was my Eddie Murphy movie. Like I've seen bits and pieces of Coming to America as I was growing up. So I've seen actually I've seen most of the movie. So I was very familiar with the jokes, but for some reason, this week was actually the first time I just seen it from beginning to end at once, from what I can remember. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, I already know most of the jokes. I've seen most of the film. I, I knew most of the the, the, the gags, and um, so for me, it's as much part of my my childhood as it is yours, perhaps. But even though without that that context, uh, the immigration context. But yeah, I did not really like this one. Like. I don't know where to start. So there's a whole thing about where they go to Queens um, in this film, where they go to Queens and they're like, they find it gentrified. Well, that's what happened to this film. It's been gentrified. Yeah, that's that's an excellent point. Yeah, Yeah, that's what it is. And 
uh, Craig Brewer, the director, he's done much better African-American themed films. So Hustle and Flow is excellent. Um, Dolomite is my name. I love Dolomite is my name. Um, and here he did. It doesn't really need his touch. He didn't really touch. He didn't really put any of his directorial hands in the film. So I felt like it didn't really need someone like Craig Brewer to to make the film better. I think. Kind of like when John Landis, he was actually um, at odds with Eddie Murphy throughout the entire making of Coming to America. And at the end of the day, it's not really, quote unquote, his film. It is more of an Eddie Murphy film. And here, yeah, I just feel like Eddie Murphy has been gentrified. And I par- I think I guess partly it has to do with the budget. I, I think I saw somewhere that the film was made for $60 million, which is amazing because it did not look like $60 million at all. Um and I guess that's why they had to cater to a more PG-13 audience. Uh, I think the fan service is really fun. And like you said, there is really no point in watching this film without watching the original because half the jokes and I think most of the jokes that land are actually the fan service jokes. Like, I will never stop laughing at McDowell's. You know, the idea of that all the jokes about, you know, the McFlurry and all that stuff. Like, I would never stop laughing at McDowell jokes, but you have to watch the first one in order to really get why he keeps bringing it up. Uh, yeah. And and also the, the throwback to Slow Glow and the Royal Bathers and all that stuff. Like, all that stuff, you really have to watch the first one to get it. Otherwise, it would never land. And unfortunately, the new stuff doesn't really, they don't really land um, as well. Uh, and Eddie Murphy, the character doesn't really feel like he's doing anything anymore. He's kind of taking a backseat back to the younger to the younger um, actors. And, you know, from a younger actor's perspective, it's great. You know, Eddie Murphy's kind of, you know, letting the younger actors have to do their thing. You know, Tracy Morgan and Leslie Jones and um, everyone else let them do their thing, which is great. But for the fans who came to watch Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall doing their thing, you really won't get enough of that. Um, even though, yes, the barbers are back. So all the characters that they did, make, they did makeup on uh, back in the first film, they're all back. So so if that's the reason you love the first film, I think you'll be fine with the second film. And yeah, unfortunately, the joke, the new jokes didn't really land. And I wish that they didn't call it Coming to America because that's a bit misrepresentation of what this film is. It's actually, I would prefer to be called Coming to Zamunda. If they had called it that, it's fine. But interestingly, while I was... I was watching this film. I kind of spent about half the time thinking up better ideas for coming to America sequels rather than this one. And it's, and you know, the blame really squarely placed on Eddie Murphy because he had to do with making up the sequel. He worked with Craig Brewer on a plot. He worked with the scriptwriters on getting the story. They had 30 years to come up with a new story. And for them to come up with this, it's a little disappointing, really. Um, I think the story really is the weakest part of the film. And um, the idea is supposed to be the fish out of water thing, right? It's about this. It, it, it plays against the the stereotypes of African immigrants in America at the time. And perhaps that still is placed on African Americans today. Is that, oh, they come from this poor place and they're not going to adjust to America. But it turns out this, this guy who comes from Africa is richer than everyone in that neighborhood. And that's the joke. That's supposed to be the joke. And... And I think it really worked well back at the time. But here, there's no real, there's like a, a, a Wakandification, I guess. It is kind of playing um, to that, to what Black Panther did for for Africa uh, or our fantasies of Africa. So they, they're taking you, they Wakandified uh, Zamunda, which I guess is interesting. But Which I think that's an interesting point. But at the same time, one of the things when I was watching the first film, I was thinking, wow, this really 
set the ground for this idea of what we kind of see in Wakanda, you know, decades later. You know, Eddie Murphy had kind of already done that here in the first film. Yeah, so it, it doesn't make sense to repeat the joke. But even then, I mean, does it do we really need Eddie Murphy to so if Black Panther the Wakanda was kind of inspired by Zamunda, do we need to see Zamunda getting inspired by Wakanda again? Right. I personally don't think so. And I would have felt it it'd be more interesting if perhaps one idea I might have had would be like uh, an America road trip movie with the family, like um, stripped of all their riches and they really kind of had to to uh, slum it across America and yes. it would take on. Yeah, that would have been, I mean, the one thing I really wanted to see, I wanted to see more about his relationship with his three daughters, which we yes, get so very exactly. little of, you know? Yeah, because he has, I mean, let's, let's, Go to fantasy land for a minute, right? These three daughters have just been has been as spoiled as Akeem was throughout his his growth, even though he's living in sort of a newer world, whatever. But what if these guys who have grown up in Africa all their lives, they have sort of have more progressive, quote unquote, progressive values, but they go to America and realize it's just as racist as it always have been. I mean, that would be very interesting. Yeah, that's take. that was one thing that I was surprised that there's like there's almost no mention of the now, you know, with regard to political issues and and issues of race and stuff that that's really happened, especially in sort of the post Obama era. It it really kind of avoids all of that altogether. Yeah. So uh, instead of talking about something that's very topical or timely, they kind of went the easy route and did the family thing and did the, the, the Wakanda thing. And I mean, the thing is, the, the coming to America was a fairy tale, right? It was a fairy tale and it wasn't meant to be like a hard hitting. It was an Eddie Murphy vehicle. It, it was, um, and coming after, especially coming after trading places is supposed to, um, solidify Eddie Murphy as this great comic actor and his brand name. And you could say that this, this film is sort of the return or a return to that brand name. Um, in that case, you know, it's okay, but I don't think that they should expect it to last longer or have as, as big of an impact with his fans as those older films. So, I mean, to me, the funniest joke was a certain um, gag done by James Earl Jones. I don't know if you if you caught it. The the TV joke. The TV joke. The the, the Zamunda News Network joke. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was the best joke in the film, but it's really just like a throwaway gag, and that's really unfortunate. Um, so I kind of have fun. I mean, it's a party film. It's a sort of a holiday film. It's it's the it's the American equivalent of a Lunar New Year film. Right. Let's put it like that. Right. And for that, as a disposable comedy, it's fine. But as a sequel that people have waited 30 years for, it doesn't really live up to expectations. So it really depends on what expectation you put on the film. If you're just going to see it as another throwaway Eddie Murphy vehicle, and I'm talking about like the late 90s one, not like the 80s ones, then I think it's fine. But if you have been waiting 30 years for this uh, to see these guys again, then sort of put your expectation up to, well, I'm happy to see them again, and then that's it. And I think you'll be you'll be happy. But if you expect them to do something that was as great as Trading Places or Coming to America, um, that, that period of Eddie Murphy, I think you'll be disappointed. So if you could pick the next Eddie Murphy sequel, what would it be? Well, they are making Beverly Hills Cop. It's been announced. Oh, good grief. So they're working on that. We already, um, we already they, had like three of those, right? 
Or yeah, they, they have a director. They have directors attached already. It's the guys who did Bad Boys 3. So they're, they're, they're working on that already. Although I'm not sure if we still want to see Eddie Murphy running around. or Because he, he's showing a bit of a tummy. I don't know if it's the <laughs> angles or something. Because I'm like, I'm like, dude. Well, dude, <laughs> dude, okay. Let me explain that when you get older... You're gonna get a tummy, okay? You're still, well, you're still, you're still young. You're still a baby. It's fine. You got that, you got that slim fit metabolism going on. But yeah, the tummy comes. No, Paul, Paul <laughs> I'm 36. I've been trying to diet for eight months. I cannot get rid of this tummy. I and I'm like, crap. I'm getting old. So I know. I understand the pain, man. I understand the pain. But do do we do we really need a Beverly Hills Cop four with 58 or 60 year old Murph, Eddie Murphy? No, no, go, go do trading places, go do some other film, you know, something that's easier on his, on, on him, you know, because we don't want him to get hurt. He's Eddie Murphy. In fact, but apparently he's supposed to do stand up, but he still won't, hasn't done it, right? Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're still waiting for that stand up special and he still hasn't done it. So, you know, go do that, you know, that's more fun. I look forward to that. All right. And, uh, you know, as kind of a last minute aside, what is the percent chance? Of a fun the luck into the tycoon sequel with Chow Yun Fat. Well, what is the chance of an election free? <laughs> Zero. Yeah. So, <laughs> so there. Un- unless it's a charity film. Yeah. Zero point zero 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 zero. You know. Yeah. Unless they, make, they need to make another charity film. If anyone from the Hong Kong film industry is, is listening and you need to make a charity film, I think Chow Yun Fat would do it for free because he's sort of chilling now. In fact, he was at. He was at Golden Scene Cinema last week watching uh, Keep Rolling, so we know he's around. And he's just sort of, he's just sort of chilling. So you guys are doing a charity film. Think about reviving the the, the fun, the luck, and the tycoon. Although I think Eddie Murphy will sue this time. You're listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more. You have been listening to the Screen Wet Screen podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Snauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. If you would like to be part of the show, please get in touch with us via our website at concast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at concast, and you can find us on um, email at eastscreen at gmail.com and Facebook at East S West S. As always, uh, please do follow along with all that Kevin does as he moves and shakes across Hong Kong. So, sir, where can they find out more about you? Well, you can find me on Twitter. I am at the Golden Rock. That's one word, the Golden Rock. Uh, yeah, or you can email me at Kevin at AsianCinema.com. Um, what else? That's that's pretty much it. That I can. Yeah, that's pretty much it. All right, and please check out our friends over at the Podcast on Fire Network and support all that they do as well. Not sure what we have upcoming on the agenda next, but we'll have something soon. Until then, this is the East Screen West Screen podcast saying, when can we travel again? Because I want to be, you know, like be coming to Hong Kong or coming to Singapore or something. And we'll see you next time. See you next time, everybody. Stay safe, stay healthy, uh, keep your mask on. Uh, cool.
Street.